0: Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Boutosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Go with me, if you will, to um, 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. And uh, continuing in. The theme of our midweeks, we are addressing the awakening, if you will. You know, revival, the word revival, such a powerful word. But, you know, sometimes these things tend to find their ways into trends and fads. And we cannot lose the concept and the power of revival because it's a catchy word right now or because it's the trendy thing to call for and ask for and believe for. Um, We need to understand that there is a reviving that's needed, but I'll be honest with you, revival shouldn't be needed to the church because a revival is necessary when something has died, (laughs) when something has withered away. Um, But... You know, we we see these cases where there has been a silencing, um, an apathy, a quietness, um, and that quietness is deafening. That quietness right now, there's a void missing. If y'all recognize, there's a void, and that's the church, that's you and I, called to rise to action, called to rise to arms, called to rise to speak on certain things, and when the church becomes silenced, There's this void and there's this uh, overwhelming, the the silence is loud almost, if that makes sense. And so there is a reviving necessary. There's an awakening. The church is called to arise. A sleeping giant needs to arise uh, and the church needs to get its voice back. And so we're approaching these topics. I want to be abundantly clear. I I am not... uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, trying to get you to uh, attain to a certain political affiliation or a a certain side or uh, a certain party, understand this. But you will find that your agendas, your values, your intentions, when you make the word of God your source of governing Directive in your life, you'll find these things get altered, and you'll find that these things uh, begin to, uh, you know, where you may have seen it one thing, one way, you'll begin to see it another. This is what I know: is that for all time, but especially in our country in America, government has become the vehicle that can either allow or resist the things of God. The government, the government system, and the governmental approaches, and the platforms that these parties support and encourage, but you think about it today. Think about the matters that are at hand. Think about the matters that are being um, addressed, even voted on, legislated in our country, which began as a country that founded itself proudly upon the word of God. Look at the things that are being encouraged, uh, tolerated, celebrated, but now even made into law that support unbiblical agendas. This is why it is very important who we vote for. It is very important uh, what, that we understand the platforms and the issues that they uh, uh, address. And let me tell you right now, uh, every candidate over promises and underdelivers. Let's just understand that. They are going to promise you the moon as they discredit and dishonor the other party. They are going to say they're going to work on this and they're going to change that. At the end of the day, political candidates by nature have to be men pleasers. So you see uh, when we get into government and when you get into politics and you get into political candidates, uh, many times you see that they're going to say whatever the people want to hear. Depending on the group and depending on the 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 state that they're in, is it more this or is it more that? And they're going to tend to lean a certain way. But at the end of the day, uh, your political candidates are not the ones that are going to change what's going on in this country. They become an avenue. They become. But if we put all of our trust and our dependence on so-and-so getting in office and -and so-and-so, then we are misaligning our role as the church. And So what has happened on all these points, whether it be the sanctity of life, uh, whether it be, Uh, The home structure, whether it be how we raise our children and what we teach them, whether it be what we recognize as a true marriage or not a true marriage, whether we uh, uh, are tolerating or allowing or supporting uh, homosexual agendas or gender confusion, even down to the race issues. What has happened is the Bible has a stance and a position and a standard on every single one of these items. I can take you to the word to show you what the family should look like. I can take you to the word to show you the value that we ought to have for children in the womb. I can take you to the word and show you uh, what a a God honoring marriage looks like. I can take you to the word and show you how we ought to deal uh, with other races and people of other colors, how we ought to walk in love, how we should deal with violence and gun violence, every issue. But here's what's happened the government has taken every one of these issues. They've hijacked the issue. They have redefined it to support their lustful desires or their agendas or their motives. Then on top of that, they now call them political positions that started out as biblical positions and tell you, the church, that we can't speak or have a position on what used to be a a biblical item. That's what's taking place. And so what has happened is it's put the church in a weird place. It's put the church in a place where maybe internally you have a conviction on these matters. But now how do we deal with it externally? And there is a, a fear that has shown up and crept into the church. They have backed the church when you and I, as we've already seen through these midweeks are what the pillar and support of truth and truth is on trial because they want to redefine and sell us a lie on every single one of these items. The midterm elections revealed this midterm elections had very little to do with illegal immigration, our allies, what are we going to do in war, the economy, inflation, taxes. But the main things that everybody wanted to know was where do you stand on abortion? Where do you stand on what we're teaching our children? Where do you stand on people that identify as certain things? Where do you stand on support? And these are all biblical matters. And so they have learned what They they have learned how to turn a nation against God using the vehicle of government, using the vehicle of legislation. And then they turn to the church and make statements like you can't support, you can't speak on, you can't have, uh, uh, and then they'll even use scripture against you. I was talking with um, a young girl, Anila, from uh, St. Augustine, Florida, from our church in St. Augustine. Uh, she was up here for kingdom rise. She plays bass. You may remember her. And uh, she has, she's a history major in college and does so much work in this area, the political arena and, and government and understanding these things. And and she said, it's interesting that uh, the left uses so many scriptures to support their positions. They'll literally use the word of God. She said, what is is also interesting is all it would take is one individual that knows the word of God to counter them and reveal and unveil everywhere they are misinterpreting and misrepresenting scripture and the nature of God. And we haven't seen that. That's all it would take is one individual that knows the word. Because they'll use scripture, but if you remember um, Jesus in the wilderness with the devil, he used scripture against Jesus. He used the word against the word. The word made flesh and dwelling among us. The scripture or the, uh, the enemy, Satan knows scripture, knows the word and knows how to use it to, to support and move his agenda along. He absolutely does. And all it takes is just a few righteous people to stand up and bring clarity to and identify where it is out of alignment, where it is being misrepresented, where uh, it is being misunderstood and misused to bring that back into alignment because at the end of the day our moral code our moral compass good and right absolute truths we all know they come from one place god and his word god and his word and you and I are the pillar and support of truth so in the mix in the in the midst of all this um we have seen this withdrawing the silencing this uh, uh, laid backness from the church. And I don't believe it's because, uh, the church, most of the church is intentionally withdrawing. I'm going to show us tonight that there's a spirit at work. There's a spirit at work that's attacking the church and attacking the use of its voice. Cause I do believe most believers now, of course, you know, that that's that's that can be very vague. A lot of people call themselves Christian. I'm talking about good-hearted Christians that know that their will and their purpose is to bring heaven to earth. But but where do I speak out? Where do I say something? Where do I direct this? Or where do I direct that? How do I answer? And we get backed into this corner of quietness. We get backed into this corner of, of well, we ask all kinds of questions. We we say, well, if I speak out, will it compromise my witness? If I speak out, am I no longer walking in love? If I say something, um, you know what what do I? And a lot of Christians don't even know their whole position or conviction on some of these matters. Some can be easily deconstructed, dismantled, or They wouldn't even know how to handle a conversation on some of these matters and what the word of God says. It could be for a multitude of reasons why we remain silent, why we don't say something in the midst of the times like what we see today. And Jesus and the word of God both address our responses to these certain attacks because the world should not be more emboldened in their position than the church is in ours. They shouldn't be more quick to answer. That doesn't mean that we just spout off at the mouth, but but we should know our positions internally and be able to expound on them externally. But I'm gonna show you here in scripture why this takes place. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is what he says. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here it is. For God gave us, uh, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, right? Not of fear, but of power and love and self control. We all know that verse, don't we? For God did not give me a spirit of fear but a spirit of power of love and a sound mind the new king james says did not give us a sp- notice he says he did not give to us a spirit of fear now there's natural fear there's a natural uh, emotion if you will or a natural reaction if you will of fear but then there's a supernatural fear a spirit of fear and God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. Now, what is this a fear of? What, are we, what is he speaking to? Now, we can use that in many contexts when it comes to fear. But there is a specific context that he's writing to Timothy about, and we need to read the next verse to know what fear Paul is referring to. Look what he says. In verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Let's read that again. For God gave us a spirit, um, not of fear, but of power and love and self control. Verse 8 says, therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The fear specifically that Paul is referencing in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, is a fear of man is a fear that would lead to being ashamed of the gospel ashamed of its message ashamed of its values ashamed of its belief systems ashamed of your faith and this is literally what we're seeing today the spirit of fear is 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 pressing in on the church today through the power of intimidation. Everyone say intimidation. Intimidating spirits, a spirit of intimidation is backing the church into a position of fear, a position of shame, literally being ashamed that I follow Christ, literally being ashamed that I adhere to the biblical standards and biblical word uh, and, and the biblical kingdom alignment that is outlined in God's word ashamed of promoting holiness, righteousness. I mean, I just found out just recently. I've never heard of this in my entire life. Maybe you have, maybe you're in the midst of it more than I am. That there are believers, Christians, born again, so-called born again believers that practice cussing. The F word, the D word, the S word, all of them, as long as you're not directing it to an individual and they intentionally, not accidentally, not oh, that slipped out, use it on a regular basis and even encourage those words in, in certain cases of, of high celebration and exuberance. Y'all are looking at me real funny right now. So y'all must have been as perplexed when you heard that as I was. Guys, we're having to defend the faith on some of the most basic principles. Would you kiss your mother with that mouth, right? Would you let your kids talk that way? Would you use those words in front of your kids? I'm, I'm not kidding you. The, the, the fact that I even have to defend the position. And of course, what's the first thing that they say in response? Well, you're just religious. You, you have a works-based faith. No, no, I don't. I, I know profanity, vulgar speech, unwholesome words. Come on, offensive speech. Why do you think it's bleaked out in certain places? Why do you think they put an S and then a star, 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 star? Why do you think they rate movies letting you know certain words may be in this movie? Because even the world knows they're inappropriate to use. I don't even need a Bible to tell me these words are vulgar. The world knows they're vulgar. The world knows they're inappropriate. Guys, this is what I'm talking about is in, in, in these days, there is a, a fear to speak out on these matters and to simply uphold to be the pillar in support of truth. We can preach all day long about being the pillar in support of truth, but if we don't deal with the spirit of fear and the spirit of intimidation, we'll find ourselves ashamed of the very faith we live. We'll find ourselves internally convicted of something, but externally offering passes and externally uh, uh, letting things go by the wayside and not addressing. I'm not, again, we've said this many times. I'm not asking you to pick a fight with every little thing that comes along. You got to choose your battles these days. But we also understand that if we're not speaking up as a voice of righteousness, nobody else is. The world all of a sudden isn't gonna wake up and get a clue and say, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be murdering babies before they're born. Guess who's gonna be the pillar to uphold that sanctity of life? The church. And being silent on the matter is not going to bring the the change. And guys, we already said this before. It may not even be that we're gonna bring change. It's that we're just gonna let them know there's an alternative. Here's the pillar in support. Here's the the truth you're trying to derail and and, and trying to come against. And we're going to uphold it. And at the very least, you're going to know this is what the Bible says. This is the standard of God's word. Look at this passage in the Amplified. In verse six, he says, that is why I would remind you to stir up, rekindle the embers of, fan the flame of, and keep burning the gracious gift of God, the inner fire that is in you by means of the laying on of hands with those of the elders at your ordination. Now watch this in verse seven in the Amplified. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Here's it, here it is defined of cowardice, of craven and cringing and fawning fear. but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of calm and well-balanced mind and discipline and self-control. He goes on in verse eight, do not blush or be ashamed then to testify to and for our Lord. He's letting us know that one of the um, um, uh, opportunities That may come to us when we stand for truth is the backlash, is the pressure to be quiet, is the challenging of of speaking out. There are even people that have said, well, you know, that's not my lane. Or "We, we shouldn't be addressing those kind of topics. I understand the divisiveness when it comes to a lot of these matters. But this is what I would say. If you are trying to refrain from dividing, then what are you encouraging people to follow? Are we defining what discipleship looks like? Are we, are we accurately defining what it looks like to follow the Lord? Or do we just have this open invitation where acceptance and tolerance and love overwhelm true repentance and coming out of darkness and being brought into light? These are the things we have to ask. If if I don't want to address certain things because it may divide, then what do I really have people following and adhering to then anyways? You know, if you... If the speed limit is 55 and you're going 65, and a and a cop pulls you over, you can get mad at the cop all you want, but your beef isn't with the cop; it's with the law of the land. If if we identify, hey, that's that's not practice becoming of a Christian. That's not activity that Christians should be uh, uh, living in and supporting and engaging in. You can be mad at me all you want, but I'm not the problem. You got a problem with the word. You got a problem with the word of God. And see this is the thing is we don't read the Bible, the Bible reads us. <laughs> the Bible's real good about identifying where we need to tweak and where we need to change and where we need to align because, again, this is about a kingdom. This is not about a democracy. This is not about everyone's got to vote and my preference and, well, I feel like it should be this. Or This is a kingdom with a king. And his word is the law. His word is the truth. And I choose to align with those values. Not on my own ability. I don't do it to become holy. I do it because he's made me holy. I do it because the price was too uh, high that Jesus paid for me to continue to engage in and allow certain activities that he's redeemed me from, set me free from. And if you have a gospel that doesn't make a demand for transformation, then it's, it's no greater than all the other religions out there. You might as well just bring it down to the same level as every other religion and every other religious practice. It doesn't actually have the power to change you and the power to save you. Paul had to address this with the churches. You had the Old Testament, you had the old law, right? And it could reveal where you were were out of alignment, but it did not have the power to bring you into alignment. What Jesus did was not only reveal the need for a savior, but save you and redeem you and give you the capacity to live different. And so... He's letting us know right here one of the first things is going to happen is there, there will be a, a tendency to withdraw, to become ashamed, to testify to and for our Lord, nor of me, a prisoner for his sake, but with me, take your share of the suffering to which the preaching of the gospel may expose you and do it in the power of God. This fear of man is a real thing. When it comes to living the kingdom life, fear of man is a real thing. In Acts chapter 4, I'll just give you a quick example. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 1, we see this very thing take place. I'll remind you that the church, uh, just two chapters prior, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120. Peter, by boldness given to him by the Holy Spirit that had just come upon him, preaches a message. That day, 3,000 souls come in. Acts chapter 3, uh, they perform a miracle, raising up the lame man at the gate called Beautiful. That creates this big uproar. Of course, there were a bunch of individuals that rejoiced uh, and and, uh, were praising God, but there were some that uh, this went directly against. They were in fear that, uh, this whole Jesus movement had not been eradicated by his crucifixion. And now we've got followers of Jesus doing and performing the same things. They weren't able to get rid of Jesus. They had actually caused it to multiply. What a mess, huh? In Acts chapter four, verse one, after they've already arrested them, it says this in verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Look what verse two says, greatly annoyed. It's amazing how righteousness annoys the unrighteous. They can't remain silent about it. They can't just not do something about it. They get moved to action. They're like, we gotta do something about this. We gotta find a way to to silence this. We gotta find a way to Do away with this. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse three says, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. They're taking drastic measures to what? Silence. And now they're gonna move right into what we just saw in 2 Timothy chapter one. Verse 4 says, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is the thing, is when uh, these things start taking place, just remember that your stance is still causing a change somewhere. They're arrested, but many people believed. Many people came into the kingdom because they refused to be silenced and withdraw. And so you may say something, you may get called out, pushback may come, opposition may show up, the fear and the intimidation uh, may try to come in. But just know that because of what you did, somebody's life is being changed. Amen. But this is what it says. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, watch this, by what power or by what name did you do this? And verse 8 says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. And he goes on and he speaks. He didn't withdraw. He didn't become ashamed of the gospel. But it says filled with the Holy Spirit. The only way you're going to counteract a spirit is with a spirit. The only way that you're going to overcome a spirit of fear or a spirit of intimidation is with a spirit. You need the Holy Spirit and you need to operate in the Holy Spirit. A church that is not yielded to or reliant or dependent upon the Holy Spirit doesn't stand a chance against the fearful, intimidating tactics of the world. It will not embolden you just to learn more information. It will not embolden you to uh, just become more well-versed in the topic or the issue that's at hand. It will not embolden you to simply become angry, frustrated, or irritated about a matter. Y'all hearing me? We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit and His covering his guidance, his direction before we start responding to issues or choosing to withdraw and circumvent certain issues. Y'all hearing me? It says, fill with the Holy Spirit. If you jump down to uh, verse 13, this is what it says in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, everyone say boldness. It says that they saw the boldness. This boldness was evident. This boldness could be seen. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. See, the boldness of the Holy Spirit will put you in positions that you are naturally unqualified for. This is why David, the shepherd boy, could charge a giant of an army while the whole rest of the Israelite armies laying low in the valley, withdrawn, quiet, silenced, not trying to disturb, not trying to approach, not even desiring to respond and stand up. And all that Goliath had was those threatening words just threats to intimidate, to bring fear. And it worked for the whole entire Israelite army. But then all of a sudden you get a shepherd boy with no uh, uh, war training, no warfare experience, no military background. But emboldened by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord upon him said, we can't tolerate this. And he didn't just speak up in frustration and he didn't just speak up in irritation and he didn't just speak up uh, because he was angry or frustrated enough about the situation. He spoke up because he was emboldened by the spirit of the Lord to respond to that matter. You see the difference? And it says here that they were untrained, uneducated, common men, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is what happens when you rely on the Holy Spirit. If you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you uh, look at verse 6, this is what it says. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. The uh, Amplified reads verse six. That's why I would remind you to stir up, rekindle the embers of, fan the flame of, and keep burning. This is why we have to stay filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why we have to keep rekindling that. This is why we have to keep uh, staying afresh with the Holy Spirit. Because if we become low or drained, in the the arena of being filled with the Holy Spirit, then we're not going to have the strength, the wherewithal, the conviction even, to stand up and speak when it's time to speak. And he said, that's on you. You've got to fan into flame. You've got to rekindle the embers. Uh, Going down to... um, Verse 7 in 2 Timothy chapter 1 in the Amplified. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of cowardice, craving, cringing, and fawning fear, but he gave us, he has given us a spirit of power. You're going to have to respond to spirits with the spirit. You're going to have to respond to these spirits of fear and these spirits of intimidation. These are not just natural tactics that they're using. There is spiritual warfare. Remember, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. There's a spirit behind all of these natural measures, all of these natural tactics that we're seeing being used. So go to Matthew chapter 10. See if I can do this quickly. I love that God will prepare you. Even when you don't know you're being prepared, he's working in preparing you. He's letting you know ahead of time And you may not even be aware of it. You may not even know, but there's preparation. He's giving you bits of information and revelation. He's showing you things that you're going to need, maybe not for today, but for a later time. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and this is what he says. When they deliver you over. Now notice he says when, not if. He doesn't say if you if you somehow fall victim to being handed over to those that oppose us. No, he says when, when they deliver you over. What does he say? Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. How? Is somebody going to come up with a piece of paper? Is is someone going to slip a quick note in there of what you should say? Uh, Are you going to go to the library and and do some intense research? Are are you going to gather more information or Google it? No. Look what he says. Uh, Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child. Nope, I skipped one. Verse 20, verse 20. For you will know what to say uh, in that hour. Verse 20 says, for it is not you who speak. He says, it's not you who speak, but what? The spirit of your father speaking through you. How did Peter know what to say in Acts chapter four? The Holy Spirit coming upon him. Being filled with the Spirit, and he knew exactly what to say in that moment. And after he spoke, that's when they responded and said, What? These men have been with Jesus. They're untrained. They're common. They're unqualified. They shouldn't even be speaking on matters such as this. They have a, a boldness that's not a natural boldness. Where's that coming from? From the Holy Spirit. It is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Go down to verse 26. Verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Verse 31, fear not. That's the fourth time in this passage we have an encouragement not to fear. Why? Because the spirit of fear is what is behind their oppression and their persecution and their opposition to the kingdom of God. All designed to corner, back you in, silence, cause a withdrawing, cause an apathy, cause a fear of man, and what will they say? What will they, they'll point their fingers. They'll take this away. They'll take that away. And ultimately these individuals were dealing far more than someone just locking the doors of their church. They're dealing with their lives. We'll take your life away. Not just arrest you and put you away, but we will end your life if you continue supporting these agendas. But repeatedly, Jesus is letting them know Do not be afraid. Verse 31, fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Skip on down to verse 39, the last verse. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you, what is your silence costing you. Because many of us can think about what it costs to say something. But he's helping us identify, if you think that you're salvaging anything by remaining silent, you're going to lose it all. It's going to cost you to speak out. It's going to cost you to say something. It's going to cost you to stand for righteousness. It'll cost you. But it'll cost you far more to remain quiet. It'll cost us way more to not say something. It'll cost us way more. And so what's the issue at hand? The issue at hand is understanding the spirits that are behind these things. I've, I've had to deal with a spirit of intimidation in my own life. I won't go into all the details. Maybe I will at at some point, but I had to deal with it just several years ago within the church as a leader, because these spirits will rise up. The the, the second you begin to promote biblical agendas, the second that you rise up and have a sphere of influence, the spirit of fear and the spirit of intimidation will try to come against you. And I, I went through that, battled it. And came out victorious on the other side. Once I identified what the issue was, once I identified where it was coming from, once I identified, there's a spirit of intimidation behind this. To quiet, to challenge, to provoke. We've got to be uh, aware of these things. I, I am. I, I do not like giving the enemy airtime. I think it's boring and and, and nonsense. To talk about all that he's doing and how everything's going, uh, I, I, you know, all that we're seeing, his works at, at his hand and all the destruction. He doesn't need any airtime. We're just going to speak victory. We're just going to speak life. We're just going to stay. But, but Jesus, Peter, Paul, they all encourage us to be aware of the enemy's devices. And this is a device that he's using. And we're seeing many bow to the fear of man. We're seeing many with good hearts, good intentions, know the word, know what the word says. They have strong convictions on the inside, but they don't know how to uh, take the approach of responding and pushing back on what's challenging them. And it's because we don't recognize it as a spirit. We just recognize it as a policy, as a legislator, uh, legislative uh, practice, as a rule of law, as a party. And we've been We've been duped. We've been, uh, these issues have been hijacked and we've bought the lie that we can't speak on or have a stance or position on these matters, but that's not gonna be the case any longer. Righteousness will be upheld. The pillar of truth will remain. You know, it's interesting that he said the church will be the pillar in support of truth. What's that indicate? That there's gonna be something to try to come and break it down, tear it down, attack it. And we're going to have to be unwavering, unwavering in that position. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit are we going to be able to respond to these matters. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit are we going to be able to be like Peter on that day, in the face of an attack, in the face of pushback, in the face of challenging, and being provoked, that we can respond out of the Spirit, not out of the flesh.